This morning we come to the Word, and really, something I never do is give the title and the sermon, but today it bears that. Is God unfair? That's the question. Is God unfair? Many people think God is unfair. Our text this morning is Romans 9, 6 through 33. But before we read, let us pray. Father, we come before you with an open Bible and an open heart, praying that your word would fill our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would use these lips of clay to declare your truth as an apologia before the church and the world relative to who you are and how you deal with human beings. May you give each one of us understanding, Lord. May you open our hearts and minds. And Father, may we live your word as we believe it. In Christ's name we ask, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Verse 6, hear now the word of God. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Basically, is God unfair? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, whom he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, 
Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The word of God. In every given courtroom, there is a bench and there is a dock. The bench is where the judge sits. He is the highest in the courtroom, and that signifies his authority. But then there is a wooden enclosure. It's called the dock. That's where the accused either walks in or is brought in in chains. And the judge then confronts the man in the dock. The judge asks him questions to determine whether or not he is guilty. C.S. Lewis wisely observed that in the old days, people approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. But for the modern man, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge, and God is in the dock. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, man is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Beloved, we lack the right and the ability to evaluate God. God judges us, we do not judge him. Our very sense of right and wrong derives from God. If God is not just, we could not even debate his justice. Might would be right, like the animal kingdom. Our passage this morning presents a theodicy. A theodicy, you say? What's a theodicy? Well, it comes from two Greek words. Theos, or theus, which is the word for God in Greek, and dike, which is the word for just or right. Thus, a theodicy is a defense of God for the justice of his actions. The question 
Is it right for God to choose some but not others? What a privilege it is for me to be able to stand up here and defend God. Have God as my client. Amen? Kind of gives me goosebumps. He's a good, good father. And that is what I hope to prove to you this morning. You must learn to make the same defense as me. It's called the apologia, the defense. You must defend God in the sphere of your world. Now, let's start with a simple question. Why, oh why, is anyone a Christian? One might answer, because he believed the gospel. That is true. But we might ask one more question. Why did he believe the gospel and others did not? I was in a group of three friends. My friend brought the gospel to two of us. I believed the gospel. My other friend did not. That's 1979. And it's still the same today. I believe the gospel. My other friend did not. We had the same presentation by the same guy. I believed. He did not. Is it because of something within Christians that's more spiritual? That we're better in some way? That enables us to believe while others hear the same message? And do not believe? The Bible says no. It's not because of anything in them. It's because of something in God. Namely, His eternal and sovereign election of these individuals to be His own. Through faith that He gives them as a gift that they exercise and say yes to Jesus Christ. That's good news to all who believe. For here's the foundation of your salvation, not something in you. Because we're all weak and we're all changing and we're mixed in our affections and we're inconstant in our faith. But God's own sovereign choice from eternity past is what is in play, is what is instrumental. The Bible says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Can I make it more plain? And salvation is all of grace. We sing about grace. We name the church, Mission of Grace. Everything's about grace. We know grace is so precious. Grace, grace, God's grace. But if salvation is based on your choice of God that you made now, that God foreknew in eternity past, then salvation is because of you and not because of grace. Do you see? And half the church world believes that God chooses you based upon Him seeing beforehand your choice of Him. Making you the instrumental cause of your salvation. It's not true. And people teach it all over this land. It's not biblical. It's not even sensical. The first point is that election 
is the Bible's teaching and not man's. Salvation history begins with God choosing believers in Christ before creation. What good news is that? Why do you think you're here? Because you chose him. And the Bible doesn't even have to state it like it understates it. Here's an example. One compelling example. Acts 13.48. Luke is recounting Paul's preaching at Pisidian Antioch. And then passing, he says this. Listen. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Wait, who believed? As many as were appointed to eternal life. He doesn't even give you a big thing, a song and dance, right? Peter teaches election, addressing his first epistle to those who are our elect. And in his second epistle, he urges readers to make your calling and election sure. What about Jesus? Did he have anything to say? I don't know. Listen to this. From John. You did not choose me, but I chose you. No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. I'm not making it up. I can't preach it any other way. Because this is the only way it is. If you're wrestling with the question of the doctrine of election, your first question should be and always be, is it taught in the Bible? The question is not whether you understand it. The question is not whether you even like it. The question is, is it taught in the Bible? And it's all over the Bible. What we need to do is believe it. And when I first heard it this way, I believed it a different way. I, believe, I was taught in the church that I was in that election was based on foreseen faith. And when I heard this, I didn't like it. And I said, no, 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 no. But then I started to see. My eyes were opened. Beloved, mostly everybody comes into the faith thinking that it was their great decision to accept Jesus that they're saved. Everybody takes credit for it until they become mature and they say, you know what? It's all a grace. Amen. Right? We all come in the same way, but all of us end up the same way ultimately. When we get to heaven, we walk in, we might see, as they say, over one arch, whosoever will may come. But as we go through the arch and turn around, we'll see chosen before the foundations of the world. Right? Election is the Bible's teaching. And every Christian believes in election. It's just what kind of election you believe in, biblical or non. Um, some people find it very hard to accept because we're humanistic in our thinking. Listen to Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. It's right laid out for you. It couldn't be any clearer. The words jump off the page. By the way, one sentence in Greek. One sentence. Paul, he wrote some long sentences. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of world that we should be homely, holy, homely, holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ 
according to the purpose of, the, of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. James Boyce writes this, It is not justice we want from God. It is grace. And grace cannot be commanded. Grace cannot be demanded. By virtue of its definition, grace is undeserved. It must flow to us from God's sovereign purposes decreed before the foundation of the world or it will not come at all. Now, first point, not all Christians in name are true Christians. He's saying it here. God chose Israel. They were an elected people. They were chosen, but not every one of them were truly saved. Only a small portion, only a remnant. Because he said it's not the children of natural um, you know, creation, but the children of promise. Not everybody that was a Jew was chosen in that way. God chose a nation, and then out of that nation, he chose a remnant. In the same way, God has a church, a local church, and a church universal. And guess what, folks? Not everybody in the local church is in the universal church. The universal church is the church of real Christians all over the universe, right? But not everybody sitting in a local church is really in that church. I pray that in this church, everybody sitting here is in that church. That's my job. But it may not be. There may be people here that don't really believe. They come. They attend. They like the cupcakes but they don't believe. Not the whole thing. So Romans 9 says, if you have spiritual privileges, make use of them. Make use of them. And there's always been two Israels. Abraham fathered Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac fathered Jacob and Esau. David fathered Solomon and Absalom. In each case, one son followed God and the other did not. Israel's prophets, priests, and kings could be false or true. Paul expects the church to make godly use of its spiritual privileges. I hope that you do too. That you're here all the time for the preaching of the word, for the teaching of the word downstairs. Think about it. I'm home making dinner and I'm going to come and serve it to you. And either you're going to be here and eat it or you're not. And if you don't eat it, you don't receive it. Who's the loser? Not me. I'm eating it because I'm hearing it. I'm preaching to me too, y'all. Right? And so not all Christians are true Christians. That means that no individual and no Christian organization can rest on heritage. God has children, but he has no grandchildren. Each person comes as a child to him. He's father, right? Just because your daddy was, or your granddaddy was, just because your great-grandfather built the church, doesn't mean that you're in. Faith is required of you, not of your granddaddy. He can't get you in. He did. So, Paul is first saying that 
that not all Israel is Israel. God's word didn't fail. Then he goes into three generations of election. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think about it. There are many nations on the face of the earth, but God chose, elected, one man, Abraham. He could have chose a bunch of people. He chose one. And he said, from you, all this blessing will come, Abraham. There he was, out in error of the Chaldees, another idolater like everybody else, and God chose him. Then Abraham was told, you're going to have a son. And this son is going to bring forth the progeny. And your descendants are going to be like the sea, the sand on the sea. And they started to get older, and Sarah got older. And they both got older, and Abraham was having trouble with his prostate and everything. And he didn't have any interest in that kind of stuff anymore. Neither did his wife. God said, you're going to have a kid. And they laughed. <laughs> what? When the promise didn't come, Sarah says to Abraham, Abe, check out Hagar. She ain't bad. She'll do. She's a servant. She can, you know, she's supposed to do anything you ask. So I went to Hagar, and they had a kid named Ishmael. Some people say that Ishmael is the progenitor of the Arabic race. I don't know if that's true. Maybe it is. And then finally, God came to him one year, the 24th year before the promise came to fruition. Next year, about this time, I'm going to come back, you're going to have a kid. Year 24, they waited 25 years for the kid. And in year 24, they come, God comes in and says, you're going to have a kid. Goodness gracious, how? You mean adoption? Nope, you're going to have a kid. It's going to be from you, Abraham, and you, Sarah. And they have a kid. And his name is Isaac. And guess what? Isaac is chosen and Ishmael is not. Isaac is elect. Ishmael is not. Then Paul says, all right, you might say of that, well, well, you're going to argue that this Ishmael was a half-blood. So then he goes down to Jacob and Esau. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Twins. And they're both in the womb. Esau is born first. Even Jacob in the womb is a scoundrel. Both of them turn out to be scoundrels. But before each one was, the, before they were born, before they did anything wrong, God chose Jacob, not Esau. In fact, he says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. So you know that it's not based upon foreseen actions, but by God's choice. You see? So you know. Is God unfair? And back then, of course, you, the idea was you always chose the older son. Esau is the older son. But God chose Jacob. Is there injustice on God's part? Says Paul. And Paul answers his own question. By no means. For he says to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is God's divine right. He's the creator. He is the potter. We are the clay. What is divine justice? Simply stated, it's an essential attribute of God whereby He infinitely, perfectly, and independently does exactly what He wants to do when and how He wants to do it. He is the standard of justice by very definition. Whatever He does is inherently just. As William Perkins once said many years ago, we must not think that God does a thing because it is good and right, but rather that the thing is good and right because God wills it and works it. Now, here's the easiest way to understand this. Are you ready? You got the benefit of a lawyer this morning. I once had a client who was convicted of first-degree murder. He went to court. He had a trial. It went before a jury. They unanimously convicted him of first-degree murder. Court said, he got justice. He didn't think so. He filed an appeal. The appeal went to the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. Seven justices in black robes with mean faces. And a little lawyer gets up there like the Wizard of Oz, right? In any event, his appeal was found unavailing. He lost by a vote of seven to zero. Get it? He couldn't appeal anymore. He got justice. He committed the crime. He got what he deserved. Then many years later, and I'm skipping a few parts, but he goes to the parole board. What's the parole board? Well, the parole board is not in the judicial system. The parole board is in the governor's executive powers. The parole board is a creation of the governor. And he filed a petition for a pardon. And he got letters from every human being on the face of the earth saying that he went to jail. He learned his lesson. And when he was in jail, something happened. He became a Christian. And people in the judicial system, yeah, everybody becomes a Christian in jail. But he really became a Christian. And he started doing all great, great things for people, serving as much as he could in jail. And he went before the parole board. And the parole board said, no, we're not giving you a pardon. Sorry. And he comes into my office and he says, I want to appeal. I want a pardon. And I say, you're in the wrong place because there is no appeal from a pardon. It's mercy. You don't deserve mercy. You only deserve justice, and you got it. But you don't get mercy. You don't deserve mercy. If you get it, be thankful, but you don't deserve it. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting all excited. God owes you justice. And you will get perfect justice. 
Better than any court, if you want God's justice, you will get it. I don't want his justice. I want his mercy. Because I know what justice will get me. It will get me hell. But I can't demand his grace. He gave it to me. I wasn't even looking for it. I wasn't. I didn't have any issues. <laughs> I was living my sinful life, enjoying it. Ending my own sinful business. Playing in a rock and roll band. Long hair. Chasing girls around. Everything was good. Living at home. Right? Paying no rent. My parents wouldn't accept a nickel. And then the offer of mercy comes. And first I say, no thanks, I don't need any mercy. I don't want mercy. Someone must have been in heaven saying, what a fool. He wants justice. But I got mercy. And if you're a Christian this morning, you did too. But you didn't deserve it. It's all of grace. And why did you get it? Because he chose you before the foundations of the world to be in Christ. And you know what? It's like, how can I put this? We had this be these beautiful mugs in my parents' house and it said something like this. Brother, as you ramble through life, I forget. Whatever be your goal, keep your eye on the donut and not upon the hole. It was a mug that was made by the Mayflower Donut Company. They, I think, were in Boston and they were a contender until Dunkin' Donuts body slammed them and they went out of business. But I won't even use the mugs. They're sitting there as idols in our house. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but anyway, you get the point. Here's my point. If you're looking at your salvation or you're looking at election and you're looking at, oh, God's unfair, you're looking at the donut hole. No, no, God is fair. He'll give the, the unbeliever, the sinner, exactly what they deserve. It'll be perfect. But you're supposed to be looking at the donut. And the donut is the retrospect that, wait a minute, God chose me. God chose me before the foundations of the world to be his son, to be his daughter. God chose you. He'll never let you go. Nothing will interrupt your journey to him. You'll be with him forever and ever and ever. He chose you. Why? I don't know. It was nothing in me. I didn't deserve to be chosen. None of us did. Every one of us were sinners. When he died for us, we were all sinners. He chose us. It's a pastoral doctrine. You're supposed to be encouraged. You're supposed to be broken of heart. You're supposed to be humbled and worshipful of God that he is so good that he chose you despite you. Despite how evil and wicked you've been, he chose you. You're my son. You're my daughter. Wow. Everyone, of all the people in the world too, he knows everyone and he picks who he wants. Especially you have seen fathers that are atrocious, right? Not every one of us grew up in a good home. Some of us grew up in households that were atrocious. We would never trust a man or a father because our fathers were awful. And here, your good, good father 
chose you. He's perfect. And he loves you. He's taking you home. And he's using you now to tell others. He's using you now to bring him glory. Election is so humbling. It enriches our worship, doesn't it? We don't come in here and say, oh yeah, grace is amazing, you know. I'm going to watch the Patriots. The Patriots will not get you to heaven. Amen. Tom Brady! <laughs> Can't do it. <laughs> and listen, don't get all hung up about election. God chose where you were to be born. He chose where you were to die. He chose what gender you are. He chose your parents. He chose your siblings. He chose whether you'd be born at all. Acts says God determined, quote, your allotted periods and the boundaries of your dwelling place, end quote. Listen to Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. Listen to this. Here we go. You ready? All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing in a, little, in a few moments, whatever my God ordains is right. 20 years ago, I had trouble with that song. I was like, wait, what? Whatever my God ordains is right. I don't have trouble with it anymore. But it took a while. As a Christian, it took a while as a Christian. Whatever my God ordains is right. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Someone told me that means that God calls a bunch of people, but only a few are pastors, and that's not what it means. It means that the gospel call goes out to everyone, but few are chosen. The days of tribulation will be shortened for the elect. Demonic deception just prior to Jesus' second coming will become so great even the elect would be deceived if it were possible. The elect will be gathered together and kept from harm just prior to the final outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth. He says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. God will vindicate the elect. Luke 18.7 says, Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he'll bring about justice for them quickly. The elect are justified by God and free from spiritual accusation by men. Romans 8.33 says this, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Now listen, we believe in second causes, folks. We believe first causes and second causes. There's a second cause. The second cause is when you get on your knees and receive Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. Oh, I'm not saying that that didn't happen. I'm not. But the cause of that was the first cause, God's election. Amen. 
Amen? Yeah, you repented and believed, and you were told to do so, but the reason why you did it is because of the first cause. The instrumental source, the instrumental aspect of your salvation is God's choice. Your choice is second, is the second cause. And the great confessions of faith lay it out so beautifully about the second cause. And so we think, you know, everything's the second cause. Uh Uh-uh. There was a cause before the second cause. It was the first cause. God is the uncaused cause. Now, we could sit here and say, you know, I think that, you know, I think that, you know what? Nobody cares what you think. (laughs) It's the word. Amen. (laughs) It's the word. Now, there's much more we could say, but I really don't have much time to say it. So I'm going to have to say it next week. Everybody comes in at the same starting point, right? We all come in deserving hell, and the Lord chooses those who then will choose him. Shouldn't God show mercy to everyone? Why did Jesus even have to die? Couldn't God have just set it up where people never sinned? Well, he didn't. He didn't do it that way. And so, the Bible says, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? It's like the little child that sang the Barney song. Do you remember? I love me, you love me, we're a happy family. It's supposed to be, I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. And as Christians, sometimes we go down the road and we think, I love me, you love me, we're a happy family. Right? That's how we think of God's love, like we deserve it. We don't. We don't deserve it. And people today think they deserve everything. Oh, Lord. Understanding that we're elected by grace alone undermines our self-centeredness and our self-satisfied way of thinking. And I dare say, that election encourages our evangelism. You say, how does that happen? It's not because you messed it up, you didn't say the right words. Let me tell you something. If that person's going to be saved, they're going to be saved, no matter if you're a bumbling idiot giving them the gospel. And you can have confidence, right? You can pray for people with confidence, knowing that God is going to have on a people and he's going to save people. I looked at people, even in this church, and say, wow, I don't think they'll ever be saved. And they're saved now. Now, as we close, remember, remember, remember. Or in the Mission of Grace way, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. There is a Romans 10 which comes right after Romans 9. And it says this, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone? Yes, everyone. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches to all who call on him. For, here it comes, got this? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? It's not like people are calling on the name of the Lord and they're saying, oh, I wish I was elect. I wish I was elect. No, man, you're saved. You're calling on the name of the Lord. And that's the first point. The second point is very simple. 
Don't you look at anybody and say, I don't think they're elect. You don't know nothing. You don't know whether they're elect. They could be the most reprobate in the world, but you don't know if they're among the elect. That's God's secret. He ain't telling you. So what that means is that you are to participate in bringing the gospel to everyone. Not just people you think are elect. We don't know. We don't know. And that's God's province. We don't go there. We just preach it. It's a shotgun blast. Right? With all the buckshot going everywhere. God's going God's to do it. He's going to do the work. But we don't sit there and say, well, I don't know about him, you know. <laughs> so, anyway, I have to stop there. Maybe one more week to make a few more points. There's more. But wait, there's more. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do indeed thank you for we're yours. You've made it so. And so, Lord, may we all just bask in the love of God that elected us to salvation. Let us bask in your love. And Father, let us seek ways to glorify you together. We pray, Lord, in particular for mercy outreach of our church. We really have this idea of doing a meals ministry to gardener and environs and, and so bringing the gospel to our area where it's so sorely needed. We pray that even now, Lord, you would open up the doors, break down the barriers, that we would be able to see that come to fruition. In Christ's name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. Amen.